You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie joins the Washington Post for a one-on-one conversation about how to get the country back to work and school in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Bob Costa, the National Political Reporter at the Washington Post. Welcome to today's program. Our guest is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, two-term Garden State Governor, a Republican, a former presidential candidate, former U.S. Attorney. He ran President Trump's transition team for most of 2016. He's also the author of Let Me Finish, his memoir of his time as governor and his time alongside President Trump. Governor Christie, thanks for joining us from your own Jersey Shore Bureau. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Happy to be with you. Governor, you're one of the few people the president listens to on the outside on political matters. And I love this item I saw in the New York Post the other day by Cindy Adams. She said you were at a, quote, come to Jesus meeting at Bedminster, the president's golf club in Jersey with President Trump. How did that go? And did the president decide to make any changes with his campaign? Well, listen, as you know, Bob, the, I've always taken the position that the consultations that I have with the president are between me and the president. I can just say this. I think the president is um, really focused on the next uh, 95 days, really focused on trying to make sure that he lays out his vision to the American people for what he wants the next four years to be. And uh, it's always good for me to um, have some time to visit with him in Bedminster um, and discuss things as I see them from where I sit and to continue to try to help him uh, articulate uh, the, the issues that he wants to articulate um, over the course of the rest of this campaign. And uh, that's all I was attempting to do when we met last week. What's he doing right? What's he doing wrong? Well, I think for the most part in the last week or two, um, I, I think his focus on the coronavirus has been good. Uh, I think his focus on you know encouraging the American people to, to wear masks, to letting them know that we're going to be in this for a while and we have to remain um, strong and resolute about it. Um, I think are all things that are very, very important. Uh, and I listen, I think the biggest thing he needs to do that he has not been doing as much as I'd like is to articulate a vision for the next four years to contrast with the Biden campaign, which is so far, you know, for, for those of us on the East Coast, Bob, um, it's kind of the Seinfeld campaign. You know, it's a campaign about nothing. Um, it, all it is is a campaign about, uh, you know, don't reelect Donald Trump. But you don't hear a thing about what Joe Biden really wants to do with the country for the next four years in any great detail, except for his, you know, 110 page manifesto with Bernie Sanders. So I, I think, you know, I listen very carefully, Bob, um, to the way the Biden campaign is being received, especially by progressives in the Democratic Party, uh, by listening to one of my Sunday show uh, um, partners, Yvette. Um, and she, this past Sunday, did not sound very happy or trusting about the Biden campaign and what a Biden presidency would look like. And I think those are things that the president has to make sure that he contrasts by being very bold and very direct about what he'll do for the next four years um, to encourage people to come out and vote. Let's pause on that, Governor. I was with the president in Texas this week. He is not talking about Vice President Biden on the stump for the most part. He's talking about the racial injustice protests He's talking about cities like Portland. He's talking about Representative Ocasio-Cortez. Why is he resisting that spotlight on Biden that you're recommending? Well, I'm not really recommending a spotlight on Biden, Bob. What I'm saying is that 
that I think the way to spotlight Biden is to talk about what you want to do for the next four years to contrast with the fact that Biden's not talking about much of that at all in any specificity. None of us really know what a Joe Biden presidency will be like because, I mean, I don't even know, if, is he going to move if he wants to the White House out of the basement in Wilmington? Or is he just going to stay in the basement in Wilmington? You know, I, I don't think he's even promised us that yet. Will he actually move? Or is he too afraid to move? So, you know, listen, this is a campaign where the president has to lay out his vision. And, and when he does that, that will force, in my view, Vice President Biden to come out and lay out his. Then you have a binary choice. And when you have a binary choice in this election, that's the kind of election I think Donald Trump can win. He cannot win a referendum election. He can win a binary choice election. Why can't he win a referendum election? I think it's hard for any incumbent to win a referendum election, um, Bob, especially when you're going through some crises. Now, even the Democrats wouldn't blame uh, President Trump for creating the coronavirus. I think even they will back off from that. And the economic crisis that has occurred as a result of the coronavirus, again, not his creation, but when you have those kind of twin crises and then you add on to it, the racial unrest in the country, which has been caused in my view by two factors. Number one, the, the murder of George Floyd and that being an indicator of, of police misconduct across the country in many places. And two, um, the coronavirus lockdown. And I think all of the tension and stress and depression that that's caused in the country, and by depression, I mean mental depression, um, I think those two things causing that third crisis, it's very hard for an incumbent to win a referendum race um, when there are crises going on in the country. You need a situation on a referendum race like Ronald Reagan had in 1984, where the country, everything was going wonderfully, the, the country was at peace, prosperity was at unprecedented levels. And then it's a referendum race because the public doesn't even care who the opponent is. They so love the current president. Um, when there's excuse me, when there's crises going on, that's not what's going to happen. Governor, I know you don't want to talk about the details of that Bedminster meeting, but that scene of you and Jared Kushner and uh, Bill Steffi and your former aide, now the campaign manager, sitting across from President Trump having a conversation. You have to wonder, as a reporter here, is the candidate on the same page? as his own campaign when it comes to all the things you're talking about, messaging, strategy? Well, I'm not going to get into, as you said, Bob, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but let me just answer your question, since as a reporter, you're endlessly curious. Um, the answer is yes. He is on the same page uh, with the people who are advising him uh, now, and I think that you'll continue to see that happen over the course of the next 95 days. Most Americans don't know Bill Stepien. You read your book, you call him Step throughout the book. He's been one of your political aides, not current, but one of your aides for years. He's run your gubernatorial races. What is his plan from your view of how, of how to jumpstart the Trump campaign? Well, that's the great thing about Step. I don't think he will see it as his role to jumpstart the Trump campaign. Um, I think Step's biggest asset is his work ethic. I've never seen anybody in politics who works as hard as Bill Stapien. And uh, one of the things I said um, in the aftermath of his uh, appointment was that there will not be a detail that will fall through the cracks with uh, Bill Stapien in charge. Um, he will work 18 hours a day. He will inspire the people around him to work almost as hard. And he will make sure 
that every detail is attended to. And one of his big strengths is voter identification and voter turnout. Um, and he, you know, he was the field director for the Trump campaign in 2016. And I think you saw the results of that in some of those key swing states where the turnout for Donald Trump was much higher than any poll predicted, any pundit anticipated. And I believe it's because, in large measure, because of the work of Bill Stepien. So I think what the president has done is bought himself a point and a half or two in all these key states by having Bill Stepien in charge, by having a real pro in charge of the, of the campaign. And, and I think the rest of it, though, is going to be up to the candidate, as it always is. And so Bill Stepien will not win or lose this race for the president. The president will. But Bill Stepien will give him a much better chance to win because of his hard work, his attention to detail, and the experience he's had in managing Republican races in a blue state like New Jersey. He knows how to go into these swing states and identify the persuadable voters and then expose them to what the president's plans are for the next four years. So there's a person from 2016 in Bill Stepien, an organization man now running the campaign. Uh, Jared Kushner's there. You're there as an outside advisor. Any chance the president brings back Steve Bannon? I hope not. Um, I don't think Steve would be the least bit productive. I think the role he played in 2016 from having been there the entire time was overplayed and overblown. I think the people who deserve real credit from 2016 um, include folks like Kellyanne Conway and Reince Priebus, um, Jason Miller, um, Stephen Miller. Um, those are the people who I think really, uh, along with Jared Kushner, ran that campaign. And I, I think Steve's gotten more credit, taken more credit, I should say, than he deserves. And boy, I, I think that would be a very, very bad day uh, for the Trump campaign um, to have Steve Bannon back in, in any official or unofficial way. But you think back four years ago, Governor, when the then-candidate Trump was on the ropes in the summer of 16, that's when he turned to Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. He's on the ropes now, according to almost every poll. So do you see him taking any dramatic action in the coming weeks to bring on someone like Bannon, if not Bannon? I think he did take some dramatic action, Bob. He, he fired Brad Parscale and he hired Bill Stepien. And that's pretty dramatic action, first off, to change your campaign manager about 115, 120 days out from a general election campaign. Um, and secondly, Kellyanne Conway still there. Yeah, I believe he's still doing digital work for the campaign, is my understanding. Um, and still working on the digital aspect, which is the way he came into the campaign, um, Bob. He was originally just restricted to doing digital work, digital advertising and, and such, which is, you know, his his background and his experience. And he's quite good at it. So I, I'm sure he'll continue to do that for the campaign. But now it builds direction. Um, I think, though, he still has Kellyanne Conway there. He has Kellyanne Conway next to him in the White House every day. And I can guarantee you that she's providing him um, with great advice and providing Bill Stepien um, with good advice when Bill seeks it. So um, Kellyanne's still there. She's never left. Um, really, beside Jared and Stephen Miller, she's the only other original White House person um, of significance left, um, other than the president and the vice president. So, uh, you know, I think Kellyanne has shown her staying power um, and her value to the president, and she'll continue to show that both privately um, in, in her consultations with the campaign and the president and public, because I think you'll see her as more of even more of a public presence on TV as the campaign um, gets to the point where the public is really paying attention.
Speaking of Vice President Pence, has the president or anyone close to him ever discussed with you in recent weeks the idea of leaving him off the Republican ticket? No. And this is, Bob, this this goes along with, um, in campaign lure, replacing the vice president or the vice presidential candidate goes along with a brokered convention. Every four years we talk about it and the media talks about it with bated breath and anticipation. And it hasn't happened in, in, in since 1960. Um, and it's not happening now um, in terms of a, of a brokered convention. And replacing the vice presidential candidate is not going to happen. president has great but respect for vice He's not going to do that. And by the way, no one votes for the number two on the ticket anyway, Bob. You're talking about with a guy like Donald Trump, the ultimate alpha on the top of the ticket, who's saying, oh, no, no, but if he changed it from Mike Pence to someone else, then I'd vote for him, thinking that that person was going to have enormous influence on the administration. I don't think so. Donald Trump's in charge. Everybody knows that. And that's why the vice presidential candidate, I think, is um, not a place where you'd want to go change it for political reasons. And substantively, the vice president has done a very good job. And I, from what the president so tells me, the president's asked. So there's no discussion among Kushner or other top officials about the idea? None that I'm aware of, no. And believe me, I've spoken to the president about it as, as late as last weekend. Um, you know, he has great respect for the vice president. And, and uh, they're printing Trump-Pence signs. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's moving forward. Is, has debate prep started? No, not formally. Uh, it has not. Um, you know, I've been able to have some conversations with the president about it, um, but it's a little bit too early to start that. You played, that, well, you're, you're, you're always careful saying you didn't play the role of the antagonist in debate prep in 16, but you played a counter, let's say, during those informal sessions at Bedminster and elsewhere. Do you expect to have a similar role this time around? Uh, if the president asks me to do that, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help him um, in any way I can get ready for the debate. So that's going to be up to the president. Um, but as you said before, I continue to be someone who, you know, offers my advice and my counsel um, to the president. And uh, so I'm certainly ready to be there in whatever role that he may want me to play. In your book, Governor, you talk about the most effective debate prep sessions in 16 were when you and Reince Priebus were the only two talking in the room so the president could focus on just two people rather than a whole room of, of advisors. Is that still your advice to him this time? Absolutely. Listen, you know, it's tough enough for a candidate to get ready for a presidential debate. It's even harder for a president to get ready for a presidential debate, because by the way, he's also running the federal government. And you look back, going all the way back to Jerry Ford, 1976, the modern era of presidential debates from 76 now to 2020, whenever an incumbent president has been involved, he has never won the first debate, not once. And so part of that is because uh, of how difficult it is to prep a president for a debate Get a president to take his mind off of the governing and onto the politics and get a president to believe that somebody who isn't president could actually beat him in a debate. So those are all challenges that Donald Trump will face because uh, Barack Obama faced it and lost to Mitt Romney. George W. Bush faced it, lost to John Kerry. Um, you know, Bill Clinton faced it, lost to Bob Dole in that first debate. Um, you go back as far as to Jimmy Carter. With, uh, with Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford with Jimmy Carter. 
So it's been a pattern and a pattern that I'm sure the president hopes um, he's going to be able to break on September 29th. How are the negotiations going with the Commission on Presidential Debates? Is the president committed at this point to showing up to all three debates? I think the president would love to have more debates if they could work out the timing. Because remember something, you know, Bob, a lot of people are going to start voting before September 29th. And the idea that they will have not seen one presidential debate by then, to me, seems ridiculous. So I think we should either move the, the, the dates up or add additional debates um, between the president and the vice president, given the, this, the, the phenomenon of early voting um, that occurs in so many states. So I think you'll absolutely see the president on stage for all three of those debates. And quite frankly, um, I'm sure he'd love to have more of them. Is that in discussion right now, having an earlier debate expanding? Is there actually a chance of that happening? Because usually the CPD is pretty firm with its plan of three presidential plus one vice presidential. Listen, that's up to, to, to Bill Stepien and, and the folks at the campaign to run those negotiations. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bystander in that regard in terms of negotiations. Those are just my views given you know what I know about uh, about the president. And I think the president would want to have more debates rather than less and sooner rather than later because of the early voting phenomenon. And I think mm -hmm. no one should be able to should be able to cast a vote in this country, you know, before hearing a presidential debate if you're going to have them. The pandemic hovers over this entire campaign. Everybody knows that. Would you advise the president to do more, particularly with the Defense Production Act at this point? Well, I had advised that all the way back in the beginning in March to invoke the Defense Production Act earlier than he did on ventilators and on PPE um, and also on reagents for testing. Um, I don't know whether we need it right now. The only area where I think we might need it right now is reagents for testing um, and whether or not there's enough time to invoke that and to make it meaningful is an open question. I'll leave that to the president and his team to decide. But I think we could have been more aggressive in that regard. And I advised the president of that at the time. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has displeased the public um, about, about uh, the handling of the, of the pandemic. He was very aggressive in terms of banning travel from China, banning travel from Europe. So in certain aspects of this, he was very, very aggressive. Um, and and uh, I wish he would have been more aggressive than others. Um, but, you know, we are where we are now. We have to just continue. I think now the key is to make sure that people understand the risks that are involved and to make sure that they're being smart. We don't need to close the whole country down again. That would be, uh, an, uh, to me, a gross overreaction. We need to reopen our country, get the economy going, get people back to work. You know, unfortunately, Bob, you saw in New Jersey um, in, in the last uh, two months, um, opioid deaths go up 20 percent over last year. You're seeing domestic violence complaints go up. You're seeing suicides go up. Those are all connected to this shutdown and the shutdown being so complete that it's ruining people's lives. It's ruining their ability to make a living, to support their families, to pay their bills. So I don't think we need to go back to something like that. We need to reopen, but people need to wear masks. They need to be smart. They need to be washing their hands. They need to be taking the proper precautions um, to be able to keep themselves safe. And most importantly, we need to shelter vulnerable populations. So if you have a comorbidity, if, you, if you're if you elderly, um, then you have to be much more careful than let's say someone in their mid-20s. Should the president be wearing a face covering more frequently and should he mandate masks nationwide? Well, the president has decided not to do national mandates. 
and to let the governors make their own choices. That is a philosophical judgment he has made. But you hear him now saying that everyone should be wearing a mask. And I think you're going to see the president when he's out and exposed to people um, in, a, in a larger way during the campaign. I think you'll see the president wearing a mask much more frequently than you've seen him wear it in the past. I don't think he needs to wear it in the White House. We didn't see that in Texas this week. I was on the trip. I said more frequently, not every time, Bob. Um, and, and the fact is that I think you're not going to see it in the White House, which I do think would be a little bit ridiculous. The president, as I understand it, is tested very frequently. But in the end, um, you know, setting a good example by wearing a mask would be the right thing to do. And I think the president will do that. Why is and it ridiculous, should. though? There, there have been cases inside the White House. He's being tested himself. Remember, a mask is to protect others, not to protect yourself. Okay, the mask is not the type of mask that will will bar anything from coming in that's out there. So what you're talking about is the president. If the president is being tested frequently, numerous times, in some instances, as I understand it, numerous times a day, um, you know, then the uh, the likelihood of him having it, Bob, is 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 highly unlikely. Um, so the mask, remember, as my friend Andrew Cuomo says, is to, you know, is to protect others, not to protect yourself. And if that's the case, then the president wearing it inside the White House, I think, would, would be more for show than anything else. Uh, but outside, he should be wearing it. And let, let me be clear. I, I absolutely believe that it's the right example to set to be wearing a mask. Um, and, and so uh, you can debate uh, the efficacy of it in certain circumstances, but you can't debate um, the fact that it sets a good example for the American people. You've had your ups and downs with Jared Kushner over the years, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor. What's your assessment of his handling of the administration's testing strategy? Well, I don't know. I mean, is it is it is it so that Jared is the person in charge of that? I you know I don't know. Um, I'm not there every day, and I can't make that evaluation. I can tell you that I know Jared works really hard um, uh, at all the things that he's doing for the president every day, but. You know, in terms of judging all that stuff, I'm not there and, I, and I, I'm not in a position to judge, Bob. You've often said, Governor, that the president is not being well served by his staff. You've said this over the years from time to time. What's your grade of Mark Meadows, the new chief of staff so far? Uh, listen, incomplete so far. You know, he's really only been there, what, a couple months now, uh, Bob? And I think you know, he's still getting, you know, the ropes, uh, getting getting used to everything and working with this president. Up close every day is a much different um, experience than being one of his supporters on Capitol Hill. I'm sure the chief is uh, is learning that now. Um, so I think it's how is he going to handle the difficult governing issues and advising the president on those in the midst of a presidential campaign. I don't think that we're going to be able to have a complete grade on, on uh, Chief of Staff Meadows until probably after the election is over. Well, he's been there since actually earlier in the year. It's been far, far more than a couple months. Not really, not really, Bob, because he didn't resign from Congress until I think it was it was April or May. Um, so this has only been a few months. So let's give him some time um, mm -hmm. to get himself, get himself acclimated there and working. Um, and uh, I've had great interaction with him. Um, he's a very bright guy, um, but I, I don't think it's fair to judge somebody on what kind of job they're doing um, you know, on a minute-by-minute minute report card. I know the media likes to do that, and I understand why. It's interesting, um, but I'm not going to engage in that. Well, you're the one who's issued grades over the years, not necessarily an, an explicit grade, but you've certainly been frank over the years with, with your opinion on chiefs of staff. 
sure, once I become, once I have a conclusion as to how they did, sure, I've had I've had opinions on on his chiefs of staff and other members of his staff. But that's after I had an opportunity to give a full evaluation. Having been a governor for eight years, I understand that you never know quite how good a staffer is after a few months. Um, it's over the uh, it's over the the length of time that they serve you that you get a much better idea of that. So um, I'm not believe me, I'm not dodging this, Bob. If I had a, a solid opinion based on fact, I would give it to you. But I'm just not going to you know uh, shoot off a grade um, just for the sake of shooting sure. it off. Opinion. So um, once I have an opinion on, on Mark Meadows, call me back. I'll be happy to give it to you. Um, check in. Uh, but right now, I think it's a little bit too soon, as I said, to give him a to give him a grade. You are a registered lobbyist now, Governor. Are you personally lobbying the president on any pandemic-related issue? Never have personally lobbied the president on any issue. So how is your lobbying life work now? Because you're an outside advisor of sorts, but you're also a lobbyist. How does that all work when you're working professionally as both a private in private practice and as kind of an outside political advisor? What I've advocated for um, are three New Jersey hospitals. So let's not make it seem like I have some huge lobbying uh, uh, practice because I don't. But I have advocated for two causes that I care deeply about. The first is the three major hospital systems in New Jersey who were under enormous stress at the beginning of this pandemic, um, with New Jersey being one of the um, worst states in the country uh, for the pandemic, to make sure that they got the pandemic relief that they deserved. And secondly, uh, for a, um, a group of uh, drug uh, abuse treatment centers um, across the country called Clean Slate, um, which I've gotten to know through my friend Patrick Kennedy, um, and trying to make sure that we keep our eye on the ball on the opioid crisis in this country, and that folks like like Clean Slate, who are providing um, ongoing um, substance abuse disorder treatment, uh, make sure that they get taken care of as well in this crisis. So those are my only clients, um, uh, you know, where I'm where I'm talking to uh, about anything regarding the pandemic or any other official lobbying. So um, you know, we're not we're not talking about a whole lot, and that does not um, involve anything other than things that I've advocated for um, across my career and things I've really cared about. You are a former U.S. attorney. You're close friends with Chris Ray, the FBI director. You actually pushed for him to be in the administration. As a former law enforcement official, do you have any alarm? Does it give you any pause to see federal agents in U.S. cities in the way the Trump administration is handling it right now? No. What gives me alarm is the fact that mayors and governors in those places have completely abdicated their responsibility to restore order to the streets. You know, all of us are supportive of peaceful protesting, but that's not what we've seen in so many of these places in Portland and other places where you have people who are destroying private property, destroying public property, and we have to restore order in, in that instance. And when the, um, the mayors and the governors abdicate their responsibility, as they've done in Oregon and in Washington and in other places, and the federal government has an obligation to go in there and do that. So, no, I have absolutely no qualms about that at all. The thing that does bother me is that these mayors and governors have put politics ahead of law enforcement. That should never happen. Let's go to one of our audience questions, Governor. This is from Alex Hanish from Virginia. He writes in, Tucker Carlson or Larry Hogan, what is the future of the Republican Party or does it have one? Well, I, my guess is that Tucker's making too much money to ever go to politics. 
Um, so I, I doubt we're going to see Tucker Carlson run for anything. Um, Larry Hogan's a great governor. He's done an amazing job in Maryland um, under very difficult circumstances, first with the riots that he had to deal with when he first came into office and now with the pandemic, not to mention his own um, struggle um, with cancer, uh, which he, he survived. Um, and so uh, Larry Hogan, you know, is a great leader of our party right now. He's chairman of the National Governors Association. The Republican Party has a huge future, no matter what happens in this in this election. Um, there's lots of great people involved in the party. And, um, you know, if the president is reelected, which I hope he is, um, then we'll have his leadership for the next four years of the party. Uh, but if not, then there'll be a vacuum in the party um, in terms of leadership. That happens whenever an incumbent president leaves. And we'll see where it goes from there. What about your own future? Any thoughts about running for Senate in New Jersey? No, no. I, I think you've seen this, me say this, Bob, before. I have absolutely no interest in being in a legislative body. Not my personality. I'm not the way I like to operate in this business. I'm an executive branch guy. So um, the legislative branch um, can, uh, can have it. That's fine. Um, uh, but uh, it's not for me. Throughout your book, you, you have this kind of running joke that you don't want to be Secretary of Labor for President Trump. But when, if, if President Trump wins a second term, have you had discussions with him about possibly joining the cabinet as attorney general? Absolutely no discussions about, um, about any uh, jobs in a second term. Um, the president is also a pretty superstitious guy, and he would call that bad karma. You'll remember from reading the book, he didn't like talking about the transition in 2016 because he thought it was bad karma. Um, he certainly is not going to be talking about any cabinet positions. And listen, I've been offered seven different jobs in the Trump administration over the course of the last three and a half years and turned them all down. Um, so, I, you know, if there's a second term, as always, if the president calls on me to ask me to do something like he did as chairman of the, the Opioid Commission, I'll always listen. And if I think it's something I feel really drawn to and have a talent to try to help the country, I'll do it. Uh, but if I don't, I'm not looking for another title, you know, between governor, U.S. attorney, father, husband, son. I got plenty of titles, Bob, so I'm not going to take a job just for a title. If I really believe I can do it, I'll, I'll do it, um, and then I can have something to contribute. If I don't, then I won't. You had some warm words there for your, your friend Larry Hogan, Maryland's governor. Uh, are you going to back him in 2024 if he runs, or are you still thinking about your own comeback bid in 2024? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't foreclose any possibility, right? So um, but I consider running? Sure, absolutely. I'm, I'm 57 years old. Um, I still am very involved um, in political life and public life in this country and have a lot of opinions about where the country should be headed and how it should be managed. Um, so I certainly wouldn't discount you know, me running again in 2024. Um, if I decided not to and Larry decided to run himself, he certainly would be someone you know, near the top of the list for me to consider um, supporting in that regard. But uh, Man, were you? I, I think the election's a good distance off. Uh, 2024 is light years away, so who knows what's going to happen. But that's why I wouldn't preclude any possibility for me, and I certainly wouldn't preclude supporting Larry uh, either. He's a, he's a wonderful guy, a good friend, um, and a talented public official. And, and final question, as you think ahead to 2024, whatever you decide to do, when you read your book, some of your former aides, um, you know their names, uh, we're very uneasy about you backing President Trump in 2016, and some of your allies still to this day say it wasn't the right move. Do you have any regret about signing on to the president's campaign and being such a close advisor to him uh, at all? Any regrets? No, no. And here's why. 
Uh, what I concluded, and I said this in the book, that after the South Carolina primary, I concluded that no one in that field was going to be able to beat Donald Trump, that Donald Trump was going to be the Republican nominee for president, and that I did not want Hillary Clinton to be president under any circumstances. And so I felt like it was my job, and quite frankly, the job of every, every other Republican, to get behind the choice of our voters. I, listen, I didn't want Donald Trump to be the nominee, Bob. I wanted to be the nominee. So, you know, it was not like I was a you know huge Donald Trump fan at the beginning. But the fact was, our voters overwhelmingly in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, um, supported uh, Donald Trump. And so my job was to go in there, because of our relationship, having been friends at that point for over 14 years, I wanted to go in and try to help him become a better candidate and a better president. And so I, I have no regrets. In, in bowing to the reality of the voters and to trying to make our candidate the best candidate he could be so I could prevent a Hillary Clinton presidency and to make him the best president he could be so that we could uh, improve our country. I think that's what patriots do. And so I have absolutely no regret at all about that. If I had to do it over again, I would do it exactly the same way. Governor Christie, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate your time as you... Uh... Take a little break from your family at the shore, and uh, thank you very much. Bob, it's always great to talk to you. Love the Washington Post throw pillow back there. Great product placement, buddy. I'll have, to, I'll, have to, I'll have to work on getting an ABC pillow for those roundtables with Ron. I'll look for that uh, on Sunday morning. Governor, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.